0: Feel at one with the content, my friends. You're listening to The Plunge. Folks, take a second to like, subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Rudy Giuliani's marriage may be over, but we're just getting started. We've got quick hits on Scott Pruitt, Sinclair Media, and all the Twitter drama, from Kurt Eichenwald to Kevin D. Williamson. In terrible takes, we have Tucker Carlson afraid of the fairer sex, Preet Bharara loving on Jeff Bezos and Ezra Klein flattering our soulless information overlord Mark Zuckerberg. For a marathon pop culture corner, we're talking about Nnedi Okorafor's Binti trilogy, John Hodgman's Vacation Land, Warren Beatty's Reds, HBO's Silicon Valley, and the ignominious rebirth of the most foul-mouthed friend of Israel. Roseanne Barr. For story time this week, I'll tell you about getting into a fight with someone aggressively asserting their right to recline on a transatlantic flight. So strap yourselves in and suck one down. This is The Plunge.
1: Is that what we're calling the fans? I guess so. I don't know how many there are. There's like seven of them. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there might be like eight or nine. (laughs) Thank you. And we appreciate anyone who tunes into the show and supports us by rating and reviewing Plunge, the podcast, this podcast on iTunes. So go to your iTunes find the plunge with an exclamation point at the end, like it's a, you know, river dance musical. And you may rate us five stars and review us with your honest critique of the program that I think provides you just indispensable insights week after week.
0: That's right. I drank a kombucha for the first time ever in anticipation of this episode. So hopefully it comes through.
1: I think that the parasites will eat you alive they probiotic
0: the of- bro they're not
1: parasites so sam love is dead this week we had a major split from <laughs> a man on the right wing nobody saw this one coming it's rudolph giuliani's <laughs> wife
0: Dan, let's edit in the clip from last week of the michael bolton <laughs>
1: So Giuliani and his wife of more than a decade calling it quits. We all remember in May 2000, he announced a press conference where he declared that he was divorcing his second wife, Donna Hanover. But he neglected to tell her first, so she found out on TV. And that was how she learned she was being divorced by Giuliani.
0: My favorite is how the quote he had on it was distinctly Trumpian. He says, like, let me muster my Rudy Giuliani voice here. Like, it is with great sadness I can confirm that Judith and I are divorcing. In these divorce situations, you cannot place blame. It is 50-50. There are problems on both
1: sides. (laughs) Ah, uh, so you started started their relationship in 1999, and Judith married Rudy in 2003. So she got really horny after 9/11. And of
0: course, you know that he met her when he was still married to his second wife, because that's how greasy politicians that have been divorced like nine times do it, baby. Like, oh, remember that that one woman I had a conversation with and probably started having an affair with like halfway through the end of my last divorce? I think I'll marry her next.
1: Yeah, he's a grease ball, and he's got to be collabing with Mueller at this point, right? He's not—I don't think he's dumb enough to go down with the ship.
0: Yeah, I think that Rudy Giuliani is savvy enough and uh, vindictive enough to survive this Trump bullshit, but that puts him in direct contrast with our next guy, the deadbeat Scott Pruitt.
1: So Scott Pruitt is the head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. He was put there despite the fact that he had sued them multiple times before (laughs) that. So he's a slime ball. And he had this weird situation where he was renting from the wife of an energy lobbyist an apartment for $50 a night when other tenants in the building were paying way more. And you kind of can't just like pay $50 a night like off the books when you're like a government administrator it's kind of weird and he extended his lease like way past um the stay he was supposed to stay multiple nights between february and april of 2017 and he didn't move out until july
0: i think it says something about the rent market in dc that part of the grift that all of these You know, Scott Pruitt is one of these guys that was appointed to dismantle the organization that he is now the head of, that being the EPA. And I think it's so funny how a big part of his grift is getting cheap rent. Like $50 a night turns out to, what, $1,500- a month which for a one bedroom on capitol hill 1500 a month is actually pretty fucking competitive
1: and obviously it's a kind of a conflict of interest if an energy lobbyist is his <laughs> landlord or the wife of an energy lobbyist is his yeah, landlord th- th-
0: that didn't even pop up to me because i just assumed he would be renting like in this in this fucking shady <laughs> yeah. or like setup with like a, an energy lobbyist if he had, if they had been like oh he like greenpeace was putting him up i would be very fucking surprised at that <laughs>
1: And for all of our O.J. Simpson heads out there, a source who remained anonymous told The Hill, Scott Pruitt is the Cato Kalen of Capitol Hill. He is the long-term house guest who takes advantage of his hosts and refuses to take a hint about when it's time to leave. So the latest is that they changed the locks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I was kind of hoping that you could like go
0: down wherever this neighborhood is and see just like Scott, you know like when like a, you know a wife is throwing the husband out of the house and you just see the man like in the street just like with his hands out like what the hell as she like throws like his bedding and like his clothes out the window that's kind of what I was like, hoping was the situation with him and his uh you know lobbyist landlord.
1: So the EPA itself keeps saying that Pruitt was paying fair market value And that this was approved by their ethics department after the fact. (laughs) So it's not like they could have fucking stopped him. But after that... Trump clapped back against murmurs that he was going to replace Pruitt and or Jeff Sessions with this tweet. "Uh, Do you believe that the fake news media is pushing hard on a story that I'm going to replace A.G. Sessions with EPA chief Scott Pruitt, who is doing a great job but is totally under siege? (laughs) Do people really believe this stuff? So much of the media is dishonest and corrupt. We have a deadbeat in the Trump administration. Who's shocked? I know I'm shocked.
0: Yeah, I, I love that Trump's idea of being under siege is uh, apparently getting what kicked out by your landlord and shit. <laughs> Something that he might have some experience with.
1: Yeah, it wasn't his dad's whole thing to only rent to Jews, even though he was like a, a KKK sympathizer.
0: Yeah, well, people on the right who want to hate the Jews are often fine with counting our money once we've handed it over to them. But uh, speaking of handing over
1: money. Oh geez. Here we go.
0: This is a bad one. This is a report from the office of the inspector general in the justice department. And it reported that since 2007, the DEA, the drug enforcement administration has taken 3.2 billion dollars in cash from people not charged with a crime.
1: Folks, that's with a B. Yes.
0: Yeah, 33.2 billion in cash. So uh, maybe people aren't that like clear with, the, with what we're talking about here. In civil a- asset forfeitures, basically, like if you get pulled over and you have like $5,000 in cash on you, then the cop can find a way to get you to hand over that money as evidence or... Just, you know, to seize it or under suspicion that you are going to use it to buy drugs or something. Because apparently in the U.S. it's a crime to have, you know, cash on you. But this goes to show that you don't even have to be accused of a crime. Because clearly if you're seizing assets from someone who has been accused of a crime, it's a different story. But with this, you have just, like, the DEA fucking has, has this massive alternate source of funding that is legal, but totally kleptocratic and you know disingenuous
1: it's extremely problematic that there's no recourse when the government just kind of seizes your money for no reason i mean does it affect the poor disproportionately wasn't that a element of this
0: yeah absolutely because if you're accused of a crime if you're poor and you are in a situation in which the police are taking money from you you don't really have recourse, that a realistic recourse most of the time. Sure, I guess you could, I think more common, it, it, like, also, maybe we're being misleading with this massive number, 3.2 billion. I think a lot of this is made up in small amounts. I know, I've heard stories of, like, the CPD in Chicago going to, like, the projects and basically shaking people down for money by, you know, threatening them or saying, like, what are you doing here? You were in this, I saw you commit this crime, Uh, do you have cash on you is that money you got from a drug deal why don't you just give me that and then they use that to go get like pizza and shit like these stories are run rampant and it goes to show that it's a systemic issue um beyond just the DEA but slapping that huge fucking number on there 3.2 billion in cash coming from people who have not been charged with a crime that's just how what is that other than naked theft
1: Definitely. So we got corruption on the governmental level there. Let's talk about corruption in the media. Everyone by now has heard about this Sinclair supercut that was passed around on the internet. So let's play that right now.
2: But we, we are concerned about the trouble that responsible one-sided news stories. Plaguing our, country.
3: plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become all too, too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More, More alarming, some media outlets and political simply aren't true without checking facts, facts first. first. Unfortunately, Unfortunately some, some members of the media the use their, their platforms, platforms to push, push their own personal biases and agenda control exactly what people think
2: and this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy.
3: This is extremely dangerous to our This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy.
1: So essentially Sinclair is a cable provider that owns local news stations and they will force the anchors of these local news stations, which currently hit 40% of the United States households with extremely right wing messages and Sam, what do you think is the strategy here? Is it to sow a sort of—I mean, as we heard in that supercut—a sort of distrust in the other sort of mainstream media?
0: Yeah, I think that that's a goal of theirs, but it goes beyond that. Sinclair, as an organization, was is just trying to like assert control. Maybe we should give a little more. Background on this. You mentioned the statistic that Sinclair currently reaches forty percent of households, but they're considering a merger with Tribune, which has been run into some some resistance from Washington, but will probably it'll probably get green lit. It will reach seventy four percent of homes when it, when that merger occurs. Jeez. And I think if when you think about your local news, I'm sure this is maybe a universal thing at this point. I feel like the ones that I've seen growing up were always like this. wild spider has been found in your neighborhood. Could it be killing your kids? It's never any, it's always sensationalist. Like, it, it would be different if it was like, can you believe these billionaires are ripping you off? Let's go investigate Mark Zuckerberg. Like, you would never see that on local news. Like, it's always hysterical and sensationalist from a right wing, you know, hide your kids, like, lock your doors, buy a gun sort of, like, viewpoint. This extremely atomized, like, you know, i guess you if you were to watch it and you were to believe everything you saw in your local news which i think a lot more people do than you are willing to give credit you would have just such a wild fucking worldview you would think it was such a dangerous place
1: and many have suggested that sinclair segments that ran in 2016 swayed people to go out and vote for trump that these viewers of Local news are generally older and they generally mm-hmm. vote.
0: Like you said, are they trying to maybe so distrust of like nationally syndicated or like cable news networks like CNN or NBC or MSNBC? I guess the idea is that a lot of people do, like a lot of older people who, like you said, vote a lot. They do trust their local news network maybe more than these like national organizations. And that is pretty advantageous for a national politician because then, if the national news networks who usually cover your sort of stuff are universally distrusted, you could do whatever the fuck you want because the local news doesn't necessarily report on it as much except for the way it affects you. And if they're saying, you know, Trump is wasting $50 billion on a border wall but there's MS-13 in your neighborhood, they're killing people that you know, then you're going to be more on board with that policy.
1: So there's more to this than that. The contracts that Sinclair employees sign are fucking crazy. So there's usually a provision in the contract saying that if you quit, you owe something along the line of your base pay times 40% and then times what percentage of your contract is left. And if you've gotten any bonuses of a certain kind, you pay those back.
0: Now I have heard that that's like largely kind of unenforceable but still like people are going to see that in their agreements and be terrified
1: these people don't make a lot of money anyway local news is not something where there's just a million jobs floating around
0: no and i think they you like you mentioned sinclair employs a shitload of people
1: seattle times posted this story that i'm gonna go into some specific things that they went through in their local sinclair station but of 1,300 open jobs listed on journalismjobs.com, the main job board for the journalism industry, you can say. 64% of those 1,300 open jobs were for Sinclair stations.
0: Also, it's worth mentioning that Sinclair expands by buying up local news stations. So you could have been employed by one company that owns a shitload of these stations. But once Sinclair buys those up, then your employment contract could change without you necessarily having to go over the change. And if the change includes that you know, insane stipulation where you have to, if you leave, you have to provide, you know, a pers- basically garnishments on your income, then it, it just goes to show like a lot of people aren't probably aren't seeing this or it, it's like a very insidious way of getting people to agree to this or trapping people in these circumstances. And it, it just goes to show like what kind of organization you're dealing with with Sinclair. They're monopolistic, ruthless, and they care about... A lot of horizontal integration and buying up other companies and like trapping people into working for them and shit.
1: So, before I talk a little bit about this Seattle Times story that talks about uh Como, like K O M O, which is the Sinclair station in Seattle, um, do you think that we're being a little too easy on these anchors? Mm,
0: it's possible, but I do tend to err on the side of arguing against the idea of free will under capitalism if that makes sense like i think the philosophically the idea of free will is you know difficult to defend but and in their case i guess like we said they're kind of they do feel trapped in this organization. I don't know if there's like the onus should be on them to like disobey their employer and not read the script or whatever. Yeah.
1: I saw David Simon, the creator of the wire tweet, something to the effect of they're fully complicit. And like, they're as much to blame as like Sinclair that, that the, the ones reading the must run segments. From my viewpoint, if is it more effective to critique these people and to
0: like say that they should have done something different and, You know, if is it more effective to do that, or is it more effective to like critique the organization? Like they could even play because when you critique the individual, the individual can't play a role in the critique. When you critique the organization, then the individual who is definitely implicated by it. And you know, if people were to these anchors were to defend Sinclair, it would be one thing. But on my side, I think I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I don't think that they should be exploited by their employer and to like repeating these fucking heinous you know right-wing viewpoints i guess if we had employees people would feel bad for them and be like they have to listen to sam and dan's like hysterical left-wing crackery there's no way that like we have to liberate them they would would definitely feel bad for the fucking employees not like we're kind of attacking their employees
1: obviously that's a hypothetical but i'm responding to that hypothetical by saying that we're a podcast that you can choose to listen to at your leisure whereas that's the local news 6 p.m 10 p.m news that is supposed to be kind of the objective community news so there is a certain distinction here between like we're definitely an opinion <laughs> i show. Was joking i know but <laughs> let's talk briefly about this seattle times story which is in the show notes so in the past station officials we're trying to bury the Sinclair-produced must-run segments, which have featured former Trump advisors and other conservatives in the wee hours when viewership is lowest. Even then, viewers noticed, uh, Como staffer, who answered incoming calls from the public, he said that people were so outraged, <laughs> Sam, that the phones were swamped as soon as the segment ran, like in the middle of the night. So people, Uh, like, don't – people aren't idiots. I know it's a progressive city in Seattle, but not to say all uh, conservatives don't have, like, any bullshit detector.
0: I think you're right that people do smell bullshit. They don't like it. So when people see the video of all those news anchors across the country speaking basically in unison, they do hear the fucking voice – in the of the ghost in the machine of this corporate like monoculture hell we live in is like this demonic voice speaking to you from the ether that is what it sounds like to me and i think other people have a reaction to that and they are going to demand more maybe from their local news or begin to critique this hopefully the systems that have created you know a sinclair broadcasting like sinclair there's no way an organization should be able to reach like 74% of homes that just even beyond the ethical that violates a lot that would have attracted a lot of antitrust attention uh, you know, as recently as a few decades ago.
1: Another element of this is that Sinclair used to just send them segments that were produced like by corporate and then What we see now is they would send the scripts out to be read word for word, which is why we saw that Supercut video. So the mood in the Seattle newsroom at KOMO was pretty bad employees spoke to the seattle times and five current and recently departed journalists at the station and about a half a dozen journalists at other sinclair stations around the country were interviewed and said there's been a lot of their rank and file who've been critical of sinclair on social media even especially after trump tweeted this asinine um did you see the the tweet from trump
0: Yeah, so funny to watch fake news networks, among the most dishonest groups of people I've ever dealt with, (laughs) criticize Sinclair Broadcasting for being biased, Sinclair is far superior to CNN, and even more fake NBC, which is a total joke.
1: So then there were people saying like we don't have a choice and like a quote was there like compliance is the only option because of the clauses we talked about earlier where they would have to pay back their salary.
0: And people act like in the United States we're so fucking superior because we don't have like a state media or something. It's so fucking stupid. Clearly like this is the like do the highest office in our government saying like oh this is the endorsed news network of this government. That other ones are dissenters and, like, you know, <laughs> counter-revolutionary, like, revisionists or something. It doesn't make fucking sense. All these people who are, you know, so aggravated by the idea of, like, centralized propaganda are the ones who are l- most loudly cheering the guy who just fucking said that he has one And and in the past he said about Fox that he has, like, trusted sources of news that he thinks Like, everyone should follow.
1: Well, I just want to read the corporate bullshit that Scott Livingston Sinclair's senior vice president of news said. He said... The promos served no political agenda. We aren't sure of the motivation for the criticism, but find it curious that we would be attacked for asking our news people to remind their audiences that unsubstantial stories exist on social media, which result in an ill informed public with potentially dangerous consequences. It is ironic that we would be attacked for messaging, prompting our journalistic initiative for fair and objective reporting, and for specifically asking the public to hold our newsrooms accountable. Fuck off, Livingston you dumb bitch
0: yeah well i mean dan maybe you can speak on this i think people in media don't always have the strongest constitutions
1: it's not an ethical business my friends
0: no so speaking of people like falling apart or you know not really having much within themselves to stand up on you've been following extensively kurt eichenwald's like terrible week on the internet
1: this kurt eichenwald story is so goddamn weird a little background on kurt eichenwald sam i attached in the show notes and you read this background story by alex nichols from the outline titled the agony and the ecstasy of kurt eichenwald who is this guy around 9 11 ish and a little before he was an extremely popular best-selling writer and around that time he came to prominence with this story in which he portrayed himself as, like, breaking up a child porn ring. But in reality, he, while working for the New York Times, paid the source, which is against journalistic ethics at the Times. (laughs) And then he claimed that he did that as a private citizen. He got in hot water because the implication was... (laughs) The implication was essentially that he was, like, kind of paying a child pornographer... You know, trying to get paid writing a news story about it. So his ethics have certainly been called into question in the past. <laughs> he sent him over $3,000 via PayPal and in cash. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, you have to put a Venmo on, like memo on everything. Like, it's like public record. You have, like, a feed of, like, your Venmo payments to whom and, like, for what? This <laughs> is Kurt Eichenwald, like, paying, like, the child porn guy for, like stuff
1: <laughs> so this is where it gets weird right the story comes out none of the details that we just mentioned the payments were out yet but i'm just gonna read this because it's un- it's so funny but in the months after publication it was revealed that eichenwald had failed to mention some pertinent details in how he went about reporting the story like how in order to convince barry to meet with him in real life eichenwald pretended to be an aging rock star <laughs> Amazing. Barry, for no explicable reason, assumed Eichenwald was Don Henley from the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the hotel, California. Barry and his business partner subsequently asked the journalist for and were given $2,000 before meeting with him. <coughs> this was something the editors at the Times had a problem with. As New York Mag reported in 07, Eichenwald had asked Barry to give the money back when he started reporting the Times story fearing conflict of interest. But unfortunately, even loaning money to a source is still unethical to Times policy. Barry refused and kept the cash along with an additional $1,100. Eichenwald 1100 Eichenwald sent him over PayPal, which the journalist later claimed not to remember sending due to epileptic seizures. <laughs> Like, that's so fucking disrespectful. Eichenwald maintains that he only originally intended to, quote, rescue Barry, not report on him, and decided to write about his story many months after he sent him money. Jesus Christ.
0: He's a bizarre fucking dude, and he's kind of surged as this, resistance figure you see him bragging about blocking russian bots on the internet and stuff we talked about his like goofy twitter persona
1: and the tentacle porn incident when he tweeted a picture and people could see on the browser that he had a tentacle porn website opened <laughs> and he claimed that it was his kids and him trying to prove to his wife that tentacle porn was real but the internet now suspects- now no, no, no,
0: no. P- don't write in and ask the plunge what tentacle porn is we don't know it's just some weird stupid fucking kurt icon garbage but Recently, his bad ethics in journalism have come up because he sent a bizarre email to Ben Shapiro, who is this alt-right 30-something-year-old who looks like a 15-year-old, who we've covered on this show before. Dan, t- take it away. like. This is an extremely bizarre case.
1: So Eichenwald got into an argument on Twitter with someone he thought was just a random troll, perhaps a Russian bot in his, like, wildest, like, jizz fantasy. But this was, in fact, a pro-Second Amendment survivor of the Parkland shooting. And Eichenwald alleged that Ben Shapiro... (laughs) I'm just going to read Eichenwald's email to Shapiro, which Shapiro tweeted out. Ben, I'm working on an article about you and your relationship with Kyle, the kid from Parkland. I'm not going to use his name for reasons that will become apparent. He's been working actively to trick journalists he believes work for non-Fox News Networks into taking any action in something in which his Twitter account was linked. He has been coordinating with some of the trolls involved with these people. He, in fact, coordinated with the other guy of the podcast that was demanding my respect... He used this garbage pushed by conservative media and leftists that I'm a fan of tentacle porn, I believe. (laughs) So, like, he is just, this is, like, this is, like, paragraphs long, email, all these, like, charges, and it took four screenshots for Shapiro to even share it. And don't forward this to Kyle, he does not need to know what a psychiatrist is saying about him. You have heard him enough, Kurt. And important that he signs off, contributing editor, Vanity Fair. So the kid from the Parkland school tried to get a boycott of MSNBC because Eichenwald's bio on Twitter said that he worked at, that he was like a paid contributor to MSNBC. But the boycott reveals that Eichenwald's contract has been up for months, so he's, like, unemployed from that. And additionally, his contract was also up at Vanity Fair. So he was just fucking, his Twitter bio all week just started shrinking with all of his credits <laughs> that he was losing
0: wasn't it like the last time he was published in vanity fair was like 2014 and like he's occasionally on msnbc to be like the bots are everywhere help me or something but
1: right and he's used his like epileptic seizures to kind of enhance his like you know sort of like courageous resistance man takes now oh my god so funny this is just a little more eichenwald history before we move on to the next figure we're going to talk about these were just a couple of quick hits on why this guy's such an asshole. He blamed Ralph Nader for Bush winning twice, but he voted for Bush twice. But he mm-hmm. was on like a soapbox about like Ralph Nader being the cause. But like, I give him all to himself. Yeah, he used to be a Republican, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he said that trump was in a mental hospital in the 1990s which was a complete fabrication and tucker carlson of all people fucking owned him like on his show let's play a clip you can give me an example of what you're talking about
2: well i'll I'll give you a perfect example you wrote this on september 12th of this year you said this is a tweet I tweet so many attacks on our bad, lazy work of the press, I doubt I'll ever be voted to win a journalism award again, which is also a humble brag, by the way. But the next day you say, quite ironically, and I'm quoting, I believe Trump was institutionalized in a mental hospital for a nervous breakdown in 1990, which is why he won't release his medical records. Do you see a little irony that one day you're criticizing the press for being lazy and inaccurate, and the next day you yourself are being <laughs> let lazy me, and, let and let inaccurate? Let me
3: give you what the question is the journalist would ask. A journalist would ask the question, why did you send that tweet? I will answer it for you now. I've been covering Donald Trump. I started writing about him in the late 1980s. At that time, I obtained his medical records from his real doctor, not from this guy who sent out a medical report then. It showed that in 1982, he was given a very heavy prescription for an amphetamine derivative, and he remained on that prescription for many years. I knew from people inside the Trump organization that uh, they were deeply concerned about his condition that he was getting reckless that he was getting um, impulsive that he wasn't sleeping that he was speaking with these sort of great variations of grandeur that he could do anything and uh, in 1990 because he did so many deals that were so reckless uh, his whole empire was going into bankruptcy and he was going through a divorce and I was told that there was and now let me say I'm talking about reporting process so I'm saying here is what I was told was he in a I mental was hospital or that, not in
2: 1990 you alleged that he was was he or wasn't he He wasn't can, was can he? I can I I mean
3: Tucker if you don't want me to answer the question I, I'm asking so, you the question was he in a mental hospital, hospital on. in 1990 but I would or like not. to answer the question you've made an okay. accusation let me answer no it. I read your tweet so in, in 1990 I was told that there was in, uh, essentially a breakdown. I'm giving reporting process here. Okay, yeah. clearly I didn't print it. Uh, I also thought Trump was a private individual, and that it didn't matter. You know, well you print um, it right here. And that as a, and this was as a result of the um, uh, amphetamine derivatives that he was taking. Um, many many years pass. And we have now the election. Now, up until that point, prior well, to the election... This is a election, very long story. He you said
2: d- he was in a mental hospital in 1990. Was he or Can wasn't I finish, he? It's really Tucker, simple question don't I'm asking like you to the finish. answer, answer the if question. If you
3: don't like the answer, don't have guests. But I would really like to Perfect. answer your question. It's now, a simple question. Was he in a many, mental many hospital, many as
2: you claimed, or wasn't he?
3: Tucker, would you like me to answer the question or okay. not? If the if answer we- is no, say so. Please but succinctly answer the question. You're filibustering with this weirdness.
1: Answer the question. Like that's pathetic. Like you, you're owned by <laughs> Tucker Carlson. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Kurt Eichenwald is kind of the king of, like, the Twitter self-own.
1: An awful version of, like, what a popular liberal pundit can be. And just hilarious to see Vanity Fair distance itself from Eichenwald after these, like, ravings in which, like, listen, dude, like, a conservative Parkland, you know, Stoneman Douglas school shooting survivor is completely allowed to fucking criticize you. And you shouldn't start flipping out and, like, start thinking he's, like, an agent of, like, Ben Shapiro and, like, the right-wing media. The gun control kids
0: and the Trump election have broken this class of liberal writers who during the bush years or around then came to like half prominence and then i guess just had their fucking worldview and brains broken in half all those like um francis fukuyama like end of history people i guess uh basically kind of like a lot of the people we make fun of the show on the show centrist like liberal people who have been really feel like their worldview has been is just confirmed over and over again instead of challenged repeatedly, like periodically by economic crises engineered by like technocratic capitalist efforts to have like this fucking philosopher king rulership over our entire planet. And when it comes down to it, it just goes to show like that they're easily fucking taken apart by being proven wrong or being humiliated publicly.
1: I've seen people who I know aren't like complete idiots retweet this guy. So just if you see Kurt Eichenwald, now you know why he's a complete piece of shit.
0: Yeah. So another piece of shit on Twitter is this guy, Owen Benjamin.
1: So at one point, Owen Benjamin was kind of this uh, up-and-coming comedian he's definitely had a comedy central special and made his way through that really tough to break like ceiling of having a career as a stand-up and like we said his brain was broken at some point and now he became this sort of edgelord on twitter
0: libertarian
1: libertarian i I guess you could say but does libertarian just mean tweeting the n-word all day
0: yeah So you send me a bunch of his tweets, because this is another person I don't really have that much background on. But he's them a (laughs) lot on Twitter. And he has a really bizarre one. He says, racism is a term used by socialists to discredit capitalists. It has nothing to do with skin color. I'm as black culturally as it gets. I'm a piano playing, baby making, money grabbing hustler with white skin. Like, Jesus fucking Christ. And then
1: he says, commies are the N-words. He's tweeting about
0: David Hogg's pubes here. Like this guy's fucking disgusting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he says, "Feel free to Hey David Hogg, feel free to try and boycott me. I don't have any sponsors." because I don't need them. Oopsies. Anyway, when did you grow pubes? Don't you think it's weird that you are telling grown men how to live when you barely have pubes? College is gay, by the way. Enjoy gay college. LOL. So Owen Benjamin is this complete hack. He's Mike Cernovich level. He tweeted a lot about soy boys and he was banned from Twitter after this rant about David Hogg's pubes. Oh my God. It's like, Eichenwald's like, that's when your brain breaks and you're on the vague, like, centrist, liberal sort of. But when the right-wing, libertarian-ish brain breaks, it's just, it's inexplicable. So, well, let me just also say, his Twitter account was suspended, but he's making, like, 5000 a month on Patreon, so... It's crazy. Ugh. And he said, like, I've worked tirely for the last five months building my online ability to make a living and it's all gone. <laughs> you will be next. Fight it now. And if you search Owen Benjamin on Twitter, there's all these like right wing like people saying, what does this mean for the future of free speech?
0: All these libertarian dudes are always the first to be on the Internet. Like, you need to stand up to fiat currency by giving a whole lot of money to me, bitch. <laughs>
1: One more right winger we got to talk about because it's just so funny. Kevin D. Williamson.
0: Okay, so Kevin D. Williamson is bizarre. He looks just ungodly. His hair is like scorched earth. It's like West Texas up there. And He has this hideous, amorphous, like shapeless fucking beard, and he's fat in the worst places. He's a terrible looking individual. Definitely worth Googling the image. But he has this bizarre, self loathing white working class outlook where he came from like a blue collar community, and he thinks the only way to transcend it is just to move out of that community and leave like the dregs behind you. So he has this like vicious, atomized worldview of everyone around him. He assumes that certain people have to, like, suffer and die just as a requisite of, like, society. And I think the most famous two extremely, like, blatantly tasteless things that he wrote and or said were, number one, his odd... Made up profile of East St. Louis where he makes a lot of really disgusting, like racist descriptions of black people he definitely did not actually interact with. He used to write for the National Review, I think is where that one came out. And then he also has this tweet where he says that women who have had abortions should be hanged, which you can't really take these things out of context. People argue that, like, the case against him is made up even like Tanahasi Coates came out and said like I don't agree with his politics but damn can Kevin D. Williamson write he's not good on any level
1: no and he doubled down on the women should be hanged for abortion thing and he had recently been hired to be a columnist at the Atlantic which really uh, is a fucking rag like look at who like David Frum writes for them Connor Freersdorf who We've talked about on this show. <laughs> so, Jeffrey Goldberg came out and s- announced this week that Kevin D. Williamson believes exactly what he said he believed.
0: The substance of what he said was like, now that I've met Kevin D. Williamson and talked to him, I totally believe that he meant what he said when he tweeted that women who get abortion should be hanged and that like black people are monkeys and stuff. It's so funny how he needed to have like firsthand white people are so fucking willing to absolve other white people of like racism that they they need to see it like firsthand in fucking front of them for them to like actually believe it occurred otherwise they think it's just like a mythical allegation or some smear that people use
1: oh and that was Jeffrey Goldberg's statement saying that Kevin D Williamson was fired from the Atlantic so he got the job and didn't write a damn thing and backlash was so strong that after confirming his hateful towards women views <laughs> Oh my, we couldn't possibly publish that within our pages. (laughs) Not
0: within the Atlantic. But it just goes to show how desperate these fuckos are for these never-Trump figures, because that's a big thing with Kevin D. Williamson, is that he looks down on the working-class rubes who voted for Trump, and he doesn't like Trump, And it goes to show, you know, David Frum has been just fucking ubiquitous these days. This, you know, ex Bush guy who fucking is one of the chief architects of the Iraq war basically argued that the Iraqis deserved war and chose it for themselves by like being violent or something. It goes to show how fucking far these people are willing to go to absolve the heinous worldviews of these, this mythical slice of Republicans who don't like Trump, but basically fucking agree with literally everything that Trump, you know, stands for, like the coalition that he represents, or that they represent a coalition that is just as fucking sadistic and vicious as he is without saying it the way that he does.
1: Yeah, let's move into some terrible takes. Let's play a clip from our boy Tucker Carlson.
2: Girls thrive when boys fail. This is the underlying assumption of much of America's gender policy and education. There is no credible research to suggest that is true. It is purely an ideological belief. And yet that assumption is pervasive, especially on college campuses. Now that's ironic, because there are more than two million more women than men enrolled in college this year. On most campuses, men are a distinct minority. At Carlo University in Pittsburgh, women outnumber men by more than six to one. And yet almost every campus has a women's studies department. In many of them, the stated goal is to fight expressions of masculinity and disempower men. At Ohio State, a course is underway this spring called Be a Man, Masculinities, Race and Nation. The syllabus for that course explains that masculinity is used to quote, justify certain kinds of violence by men. On the first day of class, students were required to consult a male privilege checklist.
1: Sam, do you think men are the minority on the campuses? I guess statistically he's right.
0: Is that an issue? I mean, so women, more women do go to college, but also less women are able to take advantage maybe of the like economic benefits post-college. Like the idea is that you go to a good college and you get a good job afterwards. But as we've seen, like there's uneven hiring across the genders in most of like the very fucking profitable sectors. And it just goes to show, like, I don't think that this threat of like women supplanting men by like getting a better education than men is gonna matter because when it comes down to deciding who gets the job a man usually gets the job over the woman and a man will also get paid more than the woman for the same job so it's bullshit on its face but it's also funny how tucker carlson is so like unhappy at the idea of there being more women on campus aren't these like alpha bros supposed to be like oh sweet like love the odds like at Tulane, we had like it was like 60 40 women to men and bros they were always like good odds bro we're all gonna get laid and shit
1: tucker is probably one of those uh virginity super uh fans like ben shapiro (laughs) you think he's got a purity ring i think tucker's married but let's move on to
0: post-marital purity ring (laughs) he's saving it for god
1: let's move on to someone of far more consequence jeff bezos so trump apparently has this vindictive streak against amazon and some people in the resistance think that that makes jeff bezos a hero and are there really people out there who are saying like buy stuff on amazon to support jeff bezos against trump <laughs> I, I don't hope think i've heard
0: people make like the financial case that you have to like fund jeff Bezos' fight against trump with it, to the extent to which it exists but i i have heard a lot of people recently being like well i mean if it's between jeff bezos and the president like i love amazon <laughs> Stop. <laughs> kind of, I think it's a hilarious worldview.
1: And Preet Barrara, who was the fired, what was he? The uh, district attorney. He was like.
0: Yeah, for Southern District. Okay. Of New York. Yeah. In New York.
1: Uh, Preet Barrara tweeted, What if Jeff Bezos bought Twitter with the change in his pocket and shut down Trump's account? Like, that's the best. You, like, that's your fantasy.
0: <laughs> they want, like, this. Uh, I don't know. Did they read like Atlas Shrugged or something and like assume that the only way society can be run is if like billionaires fight over fucking who controls the government? Is this this what people want? (laughs) It's very just literally Susan Albright, this person replying. The person's not famous. She said, I wish I could like your tweet 20 plus times.
1: Yeah, these resistance people are clinging to anything. I don't know. It's really the the rule, right, is if Trump hates you, then you're on our team. James Comey being the most irritating example because probably more than anyone, he's the reason Hillary lost.
0: But it makes sense when they rehabilitate these, like, right-wingers or fucking, like, military or, like, deep state guys for the liberal cause because they are buying into the same right-wing garbage we saw during the Bush years, which is like, what did Bush say about like the terrorists? Like if you're not with us, then you're with the terrorists. It's the same ideology, but just turned the other way. Like if you're against Trump or if Trump is against you at all, then you're with us by definition. It's this like utter, like fucking binary view of just everything. It's so disturbing.
1: And let's transition from that to this pathetic, Interview in Vox. Ezra Klein <laughs> talks to Mark Zuckerberg. And God, in the intro, I made it through 17 and a half minutes of it. It was a po- in a Ezra Klein show podcast. And here's the line. Does Zuckerberg's optimism about human nature and the benefits of a connected world make it harder for him to see the harm Facebook can cause? <laughs> what Sam, can you just break down like so reading
0: this was really funny cuz it was Sort of like a puff piece for a dictator. It reminded me of like like state media when they like leap cartoonishly lavish praise on like a benevolent overlord or something. Cambridge found... Analytica
1: mentioned once Russian yeah. bots barely mentioned. He also
0: mentions, he's like, I really was thinking a lot before this interview about your manifesto of like human prosperity. And you know, Facebook is like a company with less than like a 100,000 employees, I forget the exact number, but it's not very many people, and they're in control of so much money and so much influence. And the the whole time through this interview, Mark Zuckerberg is talking about how it's so important to regulate journalism and like how he wants to support good journalism and shit. And it's like Vox and like the Acela Corridor fucking like Ezra Klein side of liberal kingdom want these like technocrat, these like Silicon Valley god emperors to like take control. It's the same thing as the fucking uh, Jeff Bezos
1: thing. I took so many frantic notes during this because I was so like seething with rage. After Ezra praises Zuckerberg's manifesto of like just bullshit about human humankind, prosperity, and you know how Facebook can help end terrorism and solve international crises, which good luck, motherfucker. Um, (laughs) and uh, Ezra mentions Facebook's suffering crisis of trust, but rather than challenging Zuckerberg. He just tries to humanize him and fawns over his, like, scale of ambition. And it's this liberal just bowing to Silicon Valley when they have fucked shit up.
0: And like a lot of that worldview is predicated on the fact that Ezra Klein and this class of, like, liberal writer, they really don't understand the technology they're talking about to the point that Ezra Klein in the middle of the interview doesn't know that WhatsApp is free, which is the messaging app that Facebook owned, which was, I think at one point it was valued at like over a billion dollars and it had like 25 employees. You has got an absurd amount of money spread around like nobody. And it's so bizarre how they're not equipped to grapple with this. There's one time where he presses Zuckerberg on basically like, do you think you need to update your business model as compared to Apple? Because you are driven by advertising. You don't charge you know that your customers are the product. You're not selling anything. Whereas Apple at least sells people hardware and shit. And Zuckerberg was like, I don't think that's what valid criticism at all. I actually sell people. And like, he doesn't get it. Going back to like the idea that this is like he's interviewing a benevolent dictator. Ezra Klein fucking does not press him on this. No, He tries to ask him like twice and then just completely like lays off. He actually gets derailed because Zuckerberg points out that WhatsApp is free. Like Ezra Klein thought that WhatsApp was a subscription service. What a fucking idiot. He doesn't understand anything that he's talking about.
1: Zuckerberg has a lot of these vague sort of politician speak lines in it. He's like, when an issue comes up, can we deal with it responsibly? And design products with community's best interest as if, like, that's up for him individually to decide. And, like, the board of directors at Facebook know the community's best interests because they're so in touch with that because he went on this, like, ridiculous cross-country tour. And he wants to focus on the community over the short-term shareholders, but that doesn't really align with his actions. No,
0: not at all. And I mean, vast majority of the people who make a shitload of money at Facebook, like their executives make just, you know, multi billion dollar packages. That's what this is all about. It's not like this putting together society or like building networks between people. It was pretty funny, too. Um, I don't know, it made me think of the social network and how in that Zuckerberg is portrayed as like this shark. Now people think he's like the star child at the end of 2001 Space Odyssey. He's like this innocent, like, wonderkind who's like trying to lead us to a new future through his lack of facial features.
1: And... The only time Cambridge Analytica was mentioned in this entire interview, Ezra asks if Cambridge Analytica holds criminal accountability, if Zuckerberg has any penalties in place for companies that are bad actors. Like, (laughs) he doesn't even challenge him a little bit on this extremely corrupt thing that happened.
0: I mean, it's funny how you fucking listen to this and you said you made it 17 minutes in because you were so frustrated. I just read through it because I knew there was no way I could like hear... I don't know what Ezra Klein sounds like. That would hurt my ears. But also the voice of Mark Zuckerberg is the voice of, like, the demise of all of us. Like, that's going to be the last thing you hear before it all goes black.
1: (laughs) It's fucking brutal. Let's move into lighter things. This is the Literacy Corner... I'll go first. This is a quick one. I just want to recommend this book that I read a couple months ago. It's John Hodgman, the comedian, uh, daily show writer, great podcast, Judge John Hodgman, bored to death. He was really funny on that show. He wrote a book called Vacation Land, which is like memoir and kind of about the culture of like Maine and coming to terms with his mortality. And it's really like the best version of like man who is, is funny confronts his white privilege and i i thought the book was short and great vacation land john hodgman sam you had another one you want to talk about
0: yeah i mean that book sounds hilarious john hodgman is just a legend in, as far as i'm concerned in the comedic world he's brilliant so i either way i wanted to talk about some sci-fi that i've been reading next week i'm also going to do a sci-fi trilogy but this week i'm going to do the binti trilogy which is read written by Nettie Okorafor. So the most recent book came out in the trilogy, which is supposed to, I guess, close it out, called The Night Masquerade. And it f- takes place in like a far future society in Africa. And the main character, Binti, is a Himba girl. And she's a member of this tribe of astrolabe designers who are very inward but they design just like insane technology for exploring the cosmos and like communicating across these like vast distances and they are super into mathematics she's able to like call up mathematical currents and it's really interesting the way that it kind of blends the technology with like these i guess more like magical or like almost religious elements as it goes on and in the early books she attends umza university against her family's wishes it covers her journey from earth on board this massive living ship called the third fish which is like a giant shrimp with breeding sacks it's amazing the visual imagery in these books and uh it it takes her to umza university it also Covers when she goes home to her family and they all are kind of, you know, blown away that she has like left their society and a lot of her f- friends and family like view her differently. As she comes in contact with new species, they begin to have like a pr- an effect on her, like even just physically, which is really cool. Do you think it's like and, an American uh,
1: immigrant parable sort of?
0: Possibly. Maybe it could be a personal tale of from the author of like coming from, I, th- I think the author is Nigerian and it might be coming from like a, you know, a more tightly knit society there. Like, if you go to a a university abroad, then you're going to meet all kinds of different people. And it sort of, their thinking colonizes you in a way. And this sort of shows that in like a sci-fi way, which I think is very cool. There's lots of different alien species that she comes in contact with. And uh, the main point of the book is that she is a master harmonizer. Other harmonizers in her society, like she has a friend named Mwinyi who has the ability to talk to any living creature. Uh, He can basically speak any language, which is very cool and interesting. And I don't read that many books where, especially not very sci-fi books, where it's not about, like, warfare. It's mostly about, she's trying to, like, diffuse this conflict between the Kosh, who are these light-skinned, like, humanoid earth dwellers, who... They could be anything from, like, white people to maybe, like, the ID. They remind me of Israelis kind of in a bad... <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of bad, but still. Uh, and they're, they're in this, like, generations-long conflict against the Medusa, who are literally these, like, warrior jellyfish. And, uh, like I said, the visual imagination is, like, pretty off the chain. It's some cool utopian, like, humanist sci-fi, where the point is to uh, have harmony and peace. There are scenes of warfare, but that's, like... It's used as a for dramatic effect. It's not a shoot 'em up or anything like that, and it's also not in this annoying tradition of like dystopian fiction where just we can't imagine anything where society is better than it currently is. We're just like you know this is all gonna take us over. You know, the annoying fucking press like uh, prescience of I guess uh, Black Mirror and stuff. Definitely the book I want to do next week: Annihilation, which is the first in the tr- Southern Reach trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer.
1: Is that the uh, is, movie that with Natalie Portman or no? Nah?
0: Yeah, they did make it into a movie with Natalie Portman. I haven't seen the movie because it sounds like trash to be honest. And the book is amazing. I crushed that book quickly. I'll, I'll get into it next week, but uh, that's not the same thing as Binti. Binti, I just it's great to read as an adult. But I feel like if you if I was younger and I had read this, if I was maybe in like middle school, this would have been very interesting to me. And it's just. Uh, we talk a lot about shit that that we don't like and uh this is a good vision of things that we would like to see and this has won a lot of awards it won the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award it has like laudatory quotes from Ursula K Le Guin and and Neil Gaiman like other legendary sci-fi writers so it's a good read and uh it doesn't take too long to get through and it's fucking worthwhile I I actually say it doesn't take too long to get through but there are parts that I reread because I wanted to like really soak it in and like build up the image i was i had in my head because i still had like questions about it definitely worth your time
1: all right we got a meaty pop culture corner this week we will conclude our communist movie series this week warren Beatty's 1981 epic three hours and 20 minutes this is reds
2: and the profit motive in the world economy is a basic root cause for the war
1: Economic freedom for women means sexual freedom,
0: and sexual freedom means birth control. How much is the government paying you to keep me quiet? All the power is in the hands of a few men. The dream may be dying.
2: Unless we are willing to take arms to defend our heritage, we cannot call ourselves patriotic
1: Americans. I think it's would behoove us to compare reds with the other films we've watched in this series young Karl marx and death of stalin sam how do you think it stacks up
0: i would say that i liked this one the least of the three that's not because i didn't like the movie that much but like you said it is a slog it's three hours and this movie just was very overwrought In a way, I I read a long read in Vanity Fair from 2006 about the making of this. Apparently in 2006, Warren Beatty, like, broke his long silence about the movie, which he acted in and directed. And it communicated to me that it was very much like a vanity project for him to, like, live out the Jack Reed character, the protagonist, through himself. He wasn't really interested in portraying the time period or, like, that stuff— in any way on its own. It was just a vehicle for him to play Jack Reed in this kind of bizarre, like, LARPing project.
1: Well, it was for sure more of a Hollywood romance. Like, I said this before we started recording, but I was reminded of Titanic, honestly.
0: <laughs> Titanic is an extremely valid comparison. Most of the movie follows the kind of the conflict between jack reed this american journalist and communist revolutionary who was very radicalized from the start like we build up his character the first thing we see is that he has property is theft which is a classic like anarchist slogan on his door when louise bryant who is this kind of like a socialite oregonian married who is to a in,
1: dentist
0: married to a dentist for sure who is so like taken she's like a liberal writer who is interested in politics and she is so taken by jack reed and the just radical left politics that she moves to greenwich village and just winds up like inserting herself into this circle as like a writer dan like how would you characterize louise bryant as she in this movie
1: well she's played by diane keaton who obviously is one of the greatest actresses to ever live so, Since she had
0: just played Annie in, in Annie Hall.
1: Right. She'd been in Annie Hall a few years before that. It was hard for me to shake the Annie Hall character, especially, you know, a lot of it takes place in New York City and is a really centralized on a relationship between a, an ex, a flawed man and uh, her. But I feel like a lot of the movie is just her following him. Right. And it doesn't really give her Enough of a chance throughout the movie and I think by the end I still thought she is number two to Jack Reed you know she's not given a chance to really like shine on her own merits too much aside from like always kind of following him
0: but she is also flamed by like Emma Goldman in the movie who critiques her for You know, basically, like, Jack Reed is like, you don't write things that are of consequence for the revolutionary times that we're in. Because she just seemed like she wanted to be, like, a think piece writer and stuff. Like, she was just interested in being a writer and was, like, kind of taken by, like, the flair of it. Now, not to discount her as a writer, she also did go to Russia with Jack Reed. Like, she went there twice for him to participate, basically, in the Russian Revolution, which was not a pretty process as is communicated towards the end of that movie. And, but one thing that I did think the movie really conveyed well was that, like, Elaine May, the person who did a lot of the writing for the dialogue between Louise and Jack, wanted them to reflect the conflicts of, like, the 1970s between men and women and, like, the sexual revolution. And there is a lot of, like, interesting, you know, a a good take on, like, mansplaining and stuff in that movie. Yes, and
1: uh, with both Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson's character, Eugene O'Neill, the famous playwright...
0: But at the same time, Diane Keaton, I think, also said that she played Louise Bryant to be a little naive and be like someone who I think she's put it that Louise Bryant felt that she was extraordinary and was in extraordinary times, but was really kind of ordinary and not to like discount her or to like come off as being sexist on this. I think this is a conscious choice in the movie, but generally I think Louise Bryant was also kind of like really, I watched this with my girlfriend and she really didn't like Louise Bryant. She (laughs) found her very annoying. Uh, One of the worst scenes is when Jack Reed leads like a fucking delivers like a speech at, this revolutionary Soviet meeting in like 1917 during the Russian revolution and the whole crowd is like cheering for it. Oh, and the and Russian national
1: anthem is like blaring in the background.
0: Yeah. Or like, yeah. And like the international and, and like, <laughs> he gets to, like participate in like the most incredible social move of the twentieth century, but then at the end, like the payoff, she gives him like the knowing look, and he like gets to smash, and it's like, come on. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the crescendo I think the is was... them
1: is them fucking after saying they wouldn't for uh, like thirty minutes, like.
0: So either way, like Jack Rita is an interesting figure. I mean, he and like Bill Haywood from the IWW and like very few other Americans are buried in the Kremlin Wall Cemetery. And he did die for the Russian Revolution, honestly. And he was instrumental in, like, setting up the Communist Party of the United States. And it does go into a lot of, like, the party politics. And, I mean, Warren Beatty, not to discount him, like, he definitely uses this as a vanity project. But this film is fucking exhaustive. I said overwrought because apparently he took, like, 50 to 70 takes. Jack Nicholson was in tears at one point. Like, he, it's, it's meticulous and, like, it's well-researched, but... At the end, it is, like, kind of exhausting.
1: I would say the direction, directing and cinematography very strong, which yeah. both won Oscars uh, for that. It was nominated for 12 Oscars more than any other film in the previous 15 years in 1981. So this was a very, very acclaimed movie. I can definitely see why. I know it was perhaps not the most like socialist you know like like pro communist film but humanizing of the american communists at that time and especially the documentary elements of adding in those talking head interviews throughout talking about the real jack reed and louise It definitely tied it into this, I guess, what at the time was modern in 1981, but also modern now, like this modern context of like why we need to keep the memories of the Russian Revolution and what it was all about in that time. These people like that they were consequential in this sort of leftist movement at the time.
0: One of the things the movie did the best was it really conveyed accurately the fucking enthusiasm and just like soaring idealism of 1917. Like Dan, you said you were reading the you know the China Mieville book about October, and that is something that I cannot believe won over Hollywood in 1981, like the height of the Cold War with Reagan having just become president. The cheap jokes, sort of similar to our joke about. Uh, the fish sex in fucking um, Shape of Water is, of course, these these liberal Hollywood activists are voting. They're 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 all in the favor of the communists. Like they're all Nazi communists.
1: Yeah, when in reality, I don't think the movie is saying that the revolution. That's, I don't even think it, it's. I don't even know what to call it. Sympathetic is the right word. It's no. And, it's just humanizing.
0: And uh, Warren Beatty is a lib. There was actually one interesting story in that Vanity Fair article about how he like quashed an uprising of the extras who had not like received the because he was so fucking batshit as a director and actor and demanding such like long takes, like literally burning out camera motors because he didn't even stop to do the takes. He would just say like, do it again, do it again, do it again. And like burn out reels of film. The extras had not been Fed in like hours and they were all complaining and Warren Beatty apparently got like the ringleaders of the peasant revolt and told them like hey you got to cut this shit out these fuckers are uh, like ruining everything I'll pay you more if you get everyone in order and like we can film the shit. And they agreed. So he doesn't really like believe in the radical politics. It's also funny to me that uh, Warren Beatty was the guy who messed up the moonlight thing at the Oscars.
1: Yeah, that was kind of my most recent Warren Beatty memory. So the whole time I just kept thinking of (laughs) la la land. (laughs) Also because
0: Warren Beatty looks like fucking death right now.
1: Yeah, he's pretty old. You know his wife is Annette Benning, who's a lot younger. But uh, I think my most relevant takeaway to current left politics from Reds was that the left has been squabbling forever and fighting itself forever.
0: The left will always fight amongst itself more than, like, the figures that it opposes because those are the people within reach. It's way easier to browbeat your comrades than to, like, you know, destroy the capitalist system, obviously. So it's what's going to happen. And I think it is like annoying to portray it that way, but the film was also very good about letting each character say their speech and say why they felt the way they did. There are lots of good scenes of comrades like debating over direct action versus electoral politics and stuff. It was a wild ride. I'm glad I watched it, but one of the better takeaways I had from it was that It reminded me of what we said about young Marx, like, giving Karl Marx the Hollywood treatment for the first time. I mean, communism doesn't get the Hollywood treatment that often. And here it was done to great effect, and it clearly was, like, a financial and critical success, despite the insanity that it led to its being filmed.
1: All right, that was the Communist movie series. If you like that, let us know. But let's talk about what probably is uh, the... Polar opposite. HBO's Silicon Valley. Now, I wanted to look at Silicon Valley because it's a show I've enjoyed for years, but I wanted to look at it in terms of do we think that it glorifies Silicon Valley and its culture? Do we think it's critical of it? To what extent can we answer those questions based on the conversations around the show and the show itself? And I think a way to enter this is by comparing it to the wolf of wall street so through that lens what do you think we can say about silicon valley
0: well i think when you mentioned the comparison with the wolf of wall street the first thing that came to my mind was the idea that the protagonists of the show are meant to be heroic because they are outsiders as like entrepreneurs and startup workers against like these more established Tech firms in the context of the show, Hooli is like this stand in for Google that is always trying to thwart their every move through corporate maneuvering. But in The Wolf of Wall Street, they obviously play like this renegade group of like fucking penny stock manipulators who take on, I guess, people. They wind up fleecing money from other investors who have a lot more money. And in general, you're supposed to empathize with Jordan Belfort, the protagonist, and his like merry band of, you know, rogue investors over the more landed people that they're like kind of taking money from
1: i guess the question is does the wolf of wall street read as aspirational i think to a lot of people it certainly did
0: i think that even if that's not the intention i think it is kind of like an inescapable conclusion of how it goes to the point that you know jordan belfort himself the guy who wrote the book that was inspired on his life and who went to jail for what happened in it is in the movie but you attach a great uh, article for the listeners called HBO's Silicon Valley House Satire Became Celebration by Julianne Devettin, which pokes holes in anyone thinking, you know, currently that, you know, e- even now that Silicon Valley is on its fifth season at HBO, that somehow there is like a deep satire of like capital or like Silicon Valley embedded within Silicon Valley and that it's not aspirational.
1: Right. I thought this article was pretty good in highlighting that the show derives a lot of its humor from the sort of, like, memes that Silicon Valley produces, the sort of, like, uh, you know, the weird headlines you'd find in TechCrunch or other tech websites. There's the whole episode where the, the thing he's obsessing over is, like, tabs versus spaces in his code. So, I don't know, I think, like, when you see these tropes, it kind of goes beyond satire, and it's not just that, oh, it's real to life and stuff. I do think there's a certain celebration of the falling upward of a character like Richard, right? Like, he's portrayed as this awful CEO, incompetent, uh, compulsive impulsive
0: yeah and i think like i said earlier like we're supposed to empathize with them as heroes the little the laws they break and the antics they pull are we're supposed to forgive because they are like heroically overcoming this you know you know hooli who is trying to fight them there's like a patent troll at one time there's one you know hooli is always fighting for rights over what they're making and th- there's a lot of like drama derived from like these corporate maneuvers That kind of assumes a like weird business literacy or like acceptance of capitalism amongst the viewer. I don't think like you're going to get this deep satire from Silicon Valley because it already assumes a capitalist order to be in place for the events to, you know, transpire as they do in the show.
1: Exactly. A kind of affectionate take on Silicon Valley is very common on the show. I mean, Thomas Middleditch is a Verizon spokesperson and like you can't avoid those commercials. And he apparently said without a hint of irony that working on the series has taught him there's a lot of money in Silicon Valley and lauded the innovators and altruism in Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, the the critique in in Silicon Valley is more of, like, oh, these guys act in a funny way, not in, like, this pursuit of personal gain and wealth is, like, immoral or, or, like, misguided.
1: The show even has expressed interest in cameos from Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. So, like, it's the classic, like, SNL thing where, like, you know, Sarah Palin came out when Tina Fey was doing the impression of her And it just, I kind of agree with the perspective. I think it was like Malcolm Gladwell who said like that kind of deflates the satire a little bit. So I don't know. It's a little toothless at times, but regardless, I really do enjoy this show and it's got some great actors and performances. So why don't we go through a few episodes that I think kind of bring what we've been saying home a little bit.
0: Yeah. The show is funny and I like it a lot. But it's definitely not going to provide you with that, like, high-level satire that you're looking for if you want, like, a deep critique of entrepreneurship. But in the most recent episode, we've seen, like, this bizarre company called Slice Line that sells pizza at a loss. It just buys pizza from Domino's and repackages repackages it and then sells it for less because it is, like, venture capital money to fall back
1: on. It's really bizarre. Right, and it is run by this complete fucking moron who is backstabbing Richard, and Richard just vindictively destroys this guy's company.
0: But at the same time, he he's only doing that because he was trying to hire engineers, but Gavin Belson, the CEO of Huli, the main villain of the show, just hired the people for his company and then made them do nothing at his company. <laughs> there was an interesting episode where, like, outsourcing basically saves the protagonists day they're able to find a lot of coders abroad who are willing to do the job for cheaper and and it it was kind of funny to me because uh in silicon valley you have this like bizarre libertarian like tendency of like oh you got to make your own company and like be your own boss and you You don't want like these this you know government regulation, like electricity costs too much. Uh, there's patent law and stuff. But at the same time, they' are the people who want to take advantage of, I guess outsourcing and stuff the most, despite that,
1: uh, yeah, and you wrote, and I agree with this so much, a lot of the satire in Silicon Valley, they don't have a biting satire of capitalism. LOL Gavin Belson spends money on stupid things. Yeah,
0: it's it sort of goes to like your quote about how like they don't really disagree with the foundations of the system. They just think that there are certain people who are like goofy at the top of the system.
1: Well, this Blood Boy episode I think was a great Way to highlight that. So, Gavin Belson is much like Peter Thiel, the billionaire who wants to, like, make his own private island country, and he spoke at the Republican convention. He was Trump's supporter. He uh, is the guy who sued Gawker out of existence. He's not a good man, and he apparently also receives blood transfusions from young people because it, he believes it makes him younger and that he will have eternal life, but... In the episode, like, Belson listens to, like, the Blood Boy over, you know, Richard and the gang. And I thought that kind of shows that fetishized, like, worship of, like, what young people say sometimes by Silicon Valley. Like, their word is gospel. Like, young, hot people in this, like, uh, sort of Instagram culture. But more importantly,
0: like, another trope in this is that there's like these nerd versus jock mentality where the nerds are like these heroic startup guys and richard hendrix like exposes the blood boy as a stoner and like gets his revenge as well um it, there's like a lot of just i don't know basic dynamics going on right now like jordan peterson-esque like hierarchies you know they're all kind of like lobster-esque
1: and Jared has this great line played by Zach Woods. who is was Gabe on The Office. He's so funny on this show. Him and Jin Yang are definitely the best. Uh, he's like, sometimes you have to make compromises. I once slept with the head of an assisted living facility to get my friend Muriel bumped up on the wait list. Am I proud of it? No. Do I regret it? No. <laughs> so, Ethical questions like that are commonplace on the show. The end of the episode, the Blood Boy episode, Gavin just signs away the full ownership of the patent and company to Richard just because he's, like, kind of having a midlife crisis. It's sort of like we said about Death of Stalin, like, that a lot of these powerful people just run on sort of, like, personal feuds. They're not at all motivated by, like, creating the best world or the best product or the best, like, country or conditions.
0: Yeah, and it takes advantage of a humor that is kind of similar in that regard. And definitely, like, it's worth mentioning that our critiques of this show, like, especially the you know the whole nerds versus jocks theme it's been around for a while there's like an article from 2014 that mentioned how the satire of Silicon Valley doesn't go very deep and also how it relies on these kind of like you know dated TV tropes I saw one take that said it was more of like a literate Big Bang theory which I don't think is fair at all and Silicon Valley is very funny but I, I can see where they're coming from but it's also interesting that like Kumail Nanjiani, one of the th- protagonists of the series is kind of like a twitter celebrity on the resistance nowadays
1: yeah and his takes on the day's news are often colored by whatever you know msnbc talking point is so i you know usually he's someone who's kind of annoying on twitter but He did a few months back post this thread where he said, I know there's a lot of scary stuff in the world right now, but this is something I can't get out of my head. As a cast member on a show about tech, our job entails visiting tech companies, conferences, etc. We meet people eager to show off new tech. Often we'll see tech that is scary. I don't mean weapons. I mean altering videos tech that violates privacy, stuff with obvious ethical issues, and we'll bring up our concerns to them. We're realizing that zero consideration seems to be given to the ethical implications of tech. They don't even have a pat-rehearsed answer. They're shocked at being asked, which means nobody is asking these questions. We're not making it for that reason, but the way people choose to use it isn't our fault. Safeguard will develop, but tech is moving so fast that there is no way humanity or laws can keep up. We don't even know how to deal with open death threats online. Only can we do this, never should we do this. We've seen that same blasé attitude in how Twitter or Facebook dealt with abuse, fake news. Tech has the capacity to destroy us. We see the negative effect of social media and no ethical considerations are going into development of tech. You can't put this stuff back in the box. Once it's out there, it's out there and there are no guardians. It's terrifying the end.
0: And watch season five of Silicon Valley <laughs> on HBO.
1: Stream it on your Google Chrome. Well, you know, I don't think the TV networks are necessarily the most evil things Silicon Valley can offer.
0: But also, I, mean, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to sound like I expect this critique from them. Like, they work for corporations. It's fine. I wasn't even looking to it for that, like, you know deep biting satire. But uh you never like cease to find people who are like looking for that sort of thing. Anyway, uh I think it's also fair to exonerate Kumail a little bit. Like he posted once about an incident in Sacramento and Leslie Lee the third came up and said like can you follow some people to your left uh please and he asked for recommendations and a lot of people provided it for him and he generally seemed to say like Thank you for providing these. And I think he's willing to listen. A lot of people on the left were once like confused libs. So we can exonerate Kumail in person. But Silicon Valley itself is just for fun. It's just a funny joke about Silicon Valley. It's not going to go that deep. And what is deep, though, is uh, Roseanne's commitment to Israel.
1: Let's okay, it's not just Israel. <laughs> but that's the first thing we're gonna talk about. She is taking the country by storm. She got the personal call from Trump after the first episode of the Roseanne reboot aired. She is whether you like it or not, she's a huge part of the national dialogue right now, and that's just so goddamn weird considering her history, which includes some forays into the left. So this alternate article <laughs> details her rather fickle position on Israel.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's really into Likudism and she is definitely kind of a good demonstration of the bizarre union of like anti-Semitism and pro-Zionism.
1: <laughs> what is Likudism?
0: It's just a center-right, like right-wing political party in Israel it was Netanyahu's party and like, it's just a bizarre thing given her like other views. I mean, she did appear in that like Hebe magazine thing dressed up as Hitler with like cookies, but that's a magazine for Jews as well. I I don't know how to interpret her politics at all. She was, you, you mentioned that she has like some, coalition with the left as well she was like a green party candidate when she ran for president literally for president back in the day
1: that's right and this was the subject of a 2015 documentary roseanne for president the woman ran as a green party candidate at first and later as the face of the peace and freedom party And she had some left-leaning allies like Michael Moore and Sidney Sheehan, who was the mother whose son died in Iraq and she camped out outside George Bush's ranch demanding that she she be able to talk to him. So these are things that when you weigh them against what she is now, which is really like super alt-right,
0: She's into the New World Order. Edge Lord. She she's an edge Lord. She was. <laughs> she is. She dabbled in Kabbalah, another like bizarre Jewish interest of hers. She claims that she's an observant Jew, which I find odd. And then she also like mangled the Star Spangled Banner and like grabbed her like nether regions at a baseball game. I, she's just her. I don't know if she has politics to like any extent beyond like I don't know. Really lo- digging jewish people in israel and really liking trump and does that come through in her show like I, i don't i'm not that well versed in the tv show
1: i watched a little bit of it when i was younger but it was never one of my main shows but it's kind of a working class thing where her whole shtick is she's really cantankerous and you know she's the mom so usually that was uh not done in late 80s, early 90s television sitcoms. It was uh, pretty new at that point. I mean, I watched the first episode and a half of the new show, enough laughs that, you know, it's like passable sitcom. <laughs> I liked it better than Fuller House. I'll give it that. So
0: <laughs> I think it's funny that um, Vox and New York Times both admitted that the first episode was good. Specifically, you pulled out this Roxanne Gay article in the new york times op-ed section and i think it's funny what it says about those entities and what it says about how like no matter how batshit roseanne is like the executives behind this are just trying to make like a bland crowd-pleasing show so it's not gonna be as like nutty as she is because like who fucking is
1: and roxanne gay's article in the new york times takes it a step further and says this is a good show but I am not going to watch it because I am a good person and Trump's America is too, like, it's it's too important for me to, like, like, shut the fuck up. You're not an activist just because you don't watch an ABC sitcom.
0: And to expand that critique, I am not a believer in the idea of, like, conscious capitalism, the idea that, like, people should individually scrutinize their own individual like ca- consumer choices because there is no ethical consumption or capitalism and people buy what they need to get by and they buy what they can afford and it's like like i said earlier like free will is not like that easy of a concept to nail down and i think it's unfair to extend that to say like oh i am making a difference by not buying something specifically in her like writing i wanted to mention this quote where she says in my book bad feminist published in 2014 because she can't resist like plugging her own book like within her own article i would challenge you to find a single roxanne gay tweet or like essay or something that does not like include a plug for her own like book or a pro upcoming product or something it's kind of funny my
1: favorite tweet of hers was when she Said, why wasn't I invited to the Black Panther premiere?
0: <laughs> oh, that's sad. That's, that's I feel depressing. Bad for her a little bit. But anyway, I don't. <laughs> uh, she said, um, I wrote about giving myself permission to be flawed but feminist. I wrote about how sometimes I consume problematic pop culture. Like, I remember reading something of hers. She meant like rap music that has like, you know, vaguely misogynistic lyrics. And I was like, okay, but. <laughs> It just goes to show, like, she's kind of into, like, these lifestyle, like, individual consumerist concerns. She said, I know I shouldn't consume problematic pop culture. I know how harmful that pop culture can be. I still believe there's room for having principles and enjoying things that challenge those principles. But in the ensuing years, I've also been thinking about accountability and the repercussions of our choices. I've been thinking about how nothing will change if we keep consuming problematic pop culture without demanding anything better. It's like, okay, so... (sighs)
1: A boss on the Roseanne show said that the, like, there was a line on the show in, in episode three, I think, that sort of shit on Fresh off the Boat and Blackish, which are shows about families who are not white. And it was like a jab at those shows. So he was saying that, oh, we weren't trying to exclude anyone. But he turns it back and is like, oh, we were commenting on the fact that sitcoms want everybody to feel included. And it's funny how they want everyone to feel included. But like, fuck that.
0: Yeah, it was a pretty whack defense on his part.
1: And he said also, in a nutshell, that it's going to be very important for... People to ignore Roseanne's online presence, including pictures of her dressed as Hitler, holding up the burned cookies in front of an oven. Just don't think about it. Um, oh, and Kenya Barris, who's the uh, head of Blackish, the showrunner, he's trying to get out of ABC because while Roseanne's allowed to run around and talk about, you know, Pizzagate is real, they wouldn't let Blackish do a nuanced Colin Kaepernick episode. So Kenya Bowers is trying to get out of his contract. But what about the white working
0: class? I think it's time to maybe talk about the idea that conservative women are oppressed in our society.
1: So there was this article in The Hill by the fucking moron Mark Penn that Roseanne is bringing conservative American women out of the closet. Even though these are the women who put Trump in power they are vocal about it and that is just asinine that like conservative white women don't have enough of a fucking voice in this country like what are you talking about
0: <laughs> yeah it's pretty fucking bizarre and i think it definitely discounts a lot of the voices of like you know maybe the people who are on the who are a right wing and are like pretty fucking sexist and don't believe women are oppressed are maybe going to be the people who are most likely to stifle their own conservative voices. Doesn't that make sense?
1: It seems to imply that Roseanne is sort of, the quote is, ringing cultural bells that put some balance in the world of entertainment. I think Penn's implying that conservative women have all this power, but there's no representation. Mm-hmm. And that, like, Roseanne is like, oh, now I can finally see myself on TV. Like, the sort of Black Panther, um, (laughs) (laughs) assertion of, of like, the
0: working-class white (laughs) woman. Yeah, no, definitely it's funny how the first thing these, like, right-wing ideologues, like, clinked for is the fucking rhetoric of the left <laughs> like they're always like wait but what about representation like what about uh what about free speech and stuff i'm like well wait wait a minute <laughs> or like we were talking about the silicon valley shit before all those people were like what about the rights we have as laborers i was like you know that it wasn't like a corporation that fought for those for you right
1: as much as we love talking about entertainment and media don't overestimate like its importance in your actual day-to-day existence
0: yeah, you're not necessarily what you see on TV, but I think that takes us into story time.
1: That's right. So the title Sam is included in our notes is Sam versus the Right to Recline. So I'm going to recline and let him take it away.
0: That's right. It's the Passover episode, so we have the right to recline, and we're both reclining as we record, of course. Another time that I came up against the act of reclination, if you will, was on a flight back from Italy, which was a really bad place to encounter a reclining customer. This person in front of me, on this fucking like 12 hour flight, very long coming back from Italy, And this lady reclined basically, like, into my lap. You know, listeners don't know what I look like. I'm a big guy. I'm, like, 6'4". When you recline at all, you're kind of in my space inevitably. But if you recline, like, all the way back, then you're basically sitting in my lap, which is what this lady was basically doing. Her husband also reclined, but not to the same degree. And I was pretty pissed, but I was like, I'm not gonna make a scene or anything. What I will do is... Fucking, you know, every time I had to grab my laptop or take off, like, my sweatshirt, I'd be like, let me grab my laptop and, like, smack her seat with my fucking elbow. Because I'd be like, you know, the fuck out of my space, lady. So you're a
1: fan of these passive sort of uh, retaliations in in travel?
0: Yeah, because eventually I I would rather her come to the conclusion on her own that she should probably move her seat up. I I don't want to be, like, threatening this, like, old this older woman on the flight you know it's not like especially since we have to spend fucking you know 9 to 12 hours together for, I don't know how long the flight's gonna be so either way I well, I, I was doing my own thing but I was just trying to like sit back and relax and eventually this lady turns around and she's like is there a problem and I was like N- no she was like were you hitting my seat and I was like yeah, maybe a little bit I was grabbing my, my laptop I'm sorry and she was like <laughs> She was like, do you have a problem with the fact that I'm reclining? You know what? I have a legal right to recline. <laughs> wow. A lot of my stories are about people freaking out just at me. Just out the law. <laughs> bringing out the law and also freaking out on me. Like, just... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a very Larry David
1: situation. Yeah. Like. People do that to
0: me in public. I don't know why they think I'm someone that they can, like, vent on. But it happens all the time. So this lady really unloaded on me. And she... Like, she's mentioned the legal rights of a recline. I, I knew that she was fucking kooky. And my my buddy who was sitting next to me chimed in, and he was like, look, he's, he's really tall. Like, if he's moving at all, he's going to hit your seat. You're, like, reclined all the way back. And she was like, you have a problem. Like, you have an issue. He can recline back. And I was like, I'm not going to recline because if I recline, then the person behind me is, like, Squish. And she's like, well, that person can recline. And I was like, well, what is this? Like, what are we, dominoes? We're human beings here. Like, we don't have to, like, fall in line with you. This is preposterous.
1: And she was... Like some tottering conga line. It was not fair at all. And she just kept going.
0: And eventually she was like, you know what? I'm going to call a steward over. And that's when I put on the headphones I'm wearing right now and said, like, whatever. Like, you can do that. And she continued talking. She and my friend were still having it out and the steward came over and I was like just sort of lying back, like hoping I could have a a normal rest of my flight. And the steward comes over just like long suffering Italian man. And he like looks at the lady who's like waving her hands wildly and shouting at this motherfucker, like about how I'm oppressing her and shit And he looks at me nervously (laughs) and then just like looks back at her and he was just like trying to calm her down. He didn't come over and talk to me at all. He actually made her like sit up a little bit because we were about to take off, which was
2: amazing.
0: (laughs) But it was a very auspicious uh, start to my flight. And uh, she had like rascally children too, but she also had the nerve like like three quarters away into the flight to go up to this woman whose child had been crying like the whole time and be like, excuse me, ma'am, your child is crying <laughs> as if the parent like hadn't realized it. Like she was a nightmare to be on a flight with. But uh, when she mentioned the legal right to recline, I was, I knew she was like a different breed of person freaking out at me on the street. Yeah wrong point i
1: think that you had every right to kick the shit out of that chair and you should have uh, taken a, a shit in the airplane restroom and uh guided well, the fumes yes well, that's
0: your, that's your way of dealing
2: with
0: things <laughs> i uh <laughs> i was i actually afterwards investigated this product that um you attach to like the back of the person's seat in front of you. Oh, I've heard about this, which, like, right. like, locks it in place and prevents them from reclining onto you. You know what?
1: That reminds me of those, like... <laughs> which is, like, some next-level fucking... The cops put on your car, like, those boots, you know, that, like, you can't drive. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what it is. And <laughs> I
0: guess, yeah, you can just, like, boot the seat in front of you so that they can't recline onto you, which is some next-level passive-aggressive shit that I might need to get on top of. For now, I'll, uh, just leave y'all with this tale of me versus, you know, this lady's rights down with personal freedoms
1: the right to recline is strong that's the plunge and follow me on twitter at spaventacular s-p-a-v-e-n-t-a-c-u-l-a-r
0: i'm at wagstank w-a-g-s-t-a-n-k
1: what do you think the moral is of today's show we went through a lot today
0: We covered just craven capitalism in Silicon Valley and with Mark Zuckerberg's interview with Ezra Klein, with Jeff Bezos. I mean, that's just really, I think, everything that ties it together is like, we're stuck in this hell world that we all need to transcend, hopefully.
1: Thoughts and prayers to the Giuliani family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hope more misfortune befalls Scott Pruitt, who has made it a personal mission to ruin the, you know, Environmental Protection Agency.
1: And you know what? Personal misfortune all around. Kurt Eichenwald, Owen Benjamin, and Kevin D. Williamson. Sinclair. Sinclair. This has been an episode of True Scoundrels. And Corporate Monoculture. We'll see you next week. Peace.